0: Good morning church family. I hope you're having a great weekend and we're so glad that you've joined us to worship the Lord. I want you to know that my roots are deep here in North Carolina but the wonderful state of Colorado will always have a special place in my heart. It's where I met my wife and there's just something about those rugged majestic rocky mountains that makes my soul come alive. So I was pretty excited last summer when I found round trip tickets to Denver for our family of five for only $600. The only downside was the flight times. So uh, we left out of Charlotte at 5.30 in the morning and the return flight touched down at like 1.30 in the morning. So these, these aren't exactly ideal flight times under any circumstances, but especially when you're traveling with three young kids. But hey, with all the money I saved on those tickets, I was able to get us a hotel room closer to the airport the night before our big flight, which meant we were able to sleep in until 3.40 in the morning. Now, if if you have to, say, catch an airport shuttle at 4 a.m. in the morning so that you can be there an hour before your flight, what do you do so that you can sleep a little bit better? What do you do? to give yourself peace of mind. You order a wake-up call, right? And so, on this trip, not only did I get to show my kids the Garden of the Gods and the Air Force Academy, I got to teach them how to schedule a wake-up call. Now, let's just be honest with each other for a moment. Wake-up calls aren't always the most pleasant thing, are they? Especially if you're in the middle of of a great night's sleep. Your first inclination isn't gonna be one of gratitude when you hear uh, the ringing of the phone that jars you awake. But in the end, I think we all know that wake-up calls are a good thing. They allow us to become more fully alert so that we can then take appropriate action. And in the Old Testament, God's prophets fulfilled a very similar function. They were God's wake-up call to the people. When His people became complacent and were at risk of missing out on His blessings, God sent his messengers. And this morning, we'll look at the last of the minor prophets, the great Italian prophet Malachi. No, I'm, I'm just joking. Um, it's, it's actually a Hebrew name, and, uh, and it's pronounced Malachi, and it means my messenger. And, and before we dive into the book, I thought it might be helpful to situate ourselves in the context in which Malachi ministered. So if this is your first time joining us, we're in the middle of this one story series where we're looking at the unfolding story of Scripture, and today we come to the end of the Old Testament. Two weeks ago, we were in the book of Babylon, and as some of you are, sorry, we were in the book of Daniel, and as some of you will recall, the people of Israel were in captivity in Babylon because they had forsaken the covenant that God had made with them. God allowed his people to reap the consequences of their sin. And his instrument for bringing about his divine judgment was the Babylonian Empire. And the Babylonians forced the Israelites from their homes in three separate waves of deportation that were spread out over about 20 years. And the last deportation happened in 586 B.C., When the Babylonians came and they laid siege to the city of Jerusalem and they came in and they wrecked havoc on that city, leveling everything, even the most significant structure in all of Israel, that magnificent temple that Solomon had built. Well, guess what happened? Oceans rise and empires fall, right? And in the year 539, the Persian Empire overtook the Babylonian Empire. And then one year after that, in 538 B.C., Cyrus, king of the Persians, he came and he issued this decree that the Jewish exiles were free to now return to their homeland. And approximately 100 years after this decree, somewhere around the mid-5th century B.C., Malachi begins his ministry. And during this particular time, life was challenging for the people living in Judah, The temple had been rebuilt, but it was a shell of its former glory. Uh, The once mighty and independent nation of Israel was now this little insignificant postage-stamp-sized territory within the vast Persian Empire. These people were now under the subjugation of a foreign power. We get the sense from the passage that Brett read for us earlier that the economy was tough. They most likely battled Crop failure and drought and pestilence, and had to contend with poor harvests. In contrast with former times, there was no miraculous evidence of God's presence, and it seems that the people had become spiritually apathetic, maybe even a little cynical towards God. And in the midst of these conditions, Malachi steps on the scene to deliver a wake-up call from God. And the literary style of Malachi is different from the Old Testament prophets. There are no oracles of judgment, no divine proclamations. Instead, we see that Malachi's wake-up call comes in the form of these six disputations or dialogues that all follow a similar pattern. So the book of Malachi is fairly easy to outline because it neatly breaks down into these six dialogues and each section begins with God making a statement, and then the people are pictured as as questioning God, challenging him, saying, how is this true? And then God answers their question. He clarifies and expounds upon the validity of his statement or his charge. So that's the basic flow of the book. And today, we'll look at the indictment that Malachi spends the most time developing. In fact, it seems it was so important, it's the subject of the second and the fifth dialogue. So, over one third of this short book is devoted to this single topic. And we'll look mainly at the first time the charge is leveled, which is in chapter one. But we find a similar rebuke leveled again in the fifth dialogue, which is part of the passage that Brett read for us earlier. It's found in Malachi chapter three, verses seven through 12. Now, before we look, more specifically at the second disputation, it's worth mentioning how this book begins. It begins with a claim of God's great love for His people. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? The people were disillusioned, and they were, they were tempted to question God's love for them because of their difficult circumstances. And God addresses these doubts. He, he, he reassures them of His great love. And then Malachi turns the tables. He says, you know, you shouldn't be questioning God's love for you. Rather, you should be questioning your love for God. And we could summarize the rest of this book uh, in terms of these two challenges that Malachi will issue. He's going to challenge the people to, one, to renew their faithfulness, and number two, to reframe their perspective. That's the gist of the remainder of the book. And I'm going to invite you to look with me now at chapter 1, verse 6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. In essence, God says to the people, let's talk about our relationship. Let's talk about us. I mean, in your society, wouldn't a son honor his father? And and wouldn't a servant honor his master? Wouldn't an employee honor their boss? And he says, okay then, if that's how things will work, how come then, uh, if you're saying, I'm your father, and and by the way, just in Exodus 4, that's how the covenant relationship was described with Israel as being God's son, God says, "Then, then where's my honor? Or if you say, I'm your Lord and Master, where's the fear? Now, fear in this context doesn't mean being terrified of God. Rather, it speaks to the respect and the proper reverence that leads to worship and obedience. Now, I realize that our culture is a little different from the ancient Near East, but I think we still get the concept that some relationships should be marked by respect and honor. I mean, you might have a great relationship with your grandparents, it might be a very loving relationship. But do you call them by their first name? I'm guessing not, right? Or what about when you were a student? How did you relate to your, your professors, your teachers? I'm guessing it was different from the way that you interacted with your friends. I'm guessing that, that, that through your actions, through the, the way that you, you speak to them, that you convey a sense of respect to your teachers. And God says, you know... You you might say, I'm your father. You might say, I'm your Lord. But it doesn't show in the way that you're relating to me. And the priests say, oh, come on, God. What are you talking about? How how have we despised your name? And God says, I'm glad you asked. Let let me elaborate. Let me clarify for you. And so we're going to continue reading now in verse 7. By offering polluted food upon my altar... But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand Will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. So this is an example of satire. God says, you've despised my name because in your offerings to me, you've brought me polluted food. And the priests respond incredulously, how have we done that? And God says, come on now. You're offering up blind animals at the altar. People are bringing animals that are lame and sick to the temple to give to me. Is that how you treat the governor? If you wanted to honor him, would you give him blemished animals from your flock? And the answer is, of course not. Now, now just to give this illustration that God is using a more contemporary spin, let me ask you this. If you could invite over one person for dinner in the whole world, and they had to be living, who would it be? You going to go with your favorite actor? You going to pick Tom Hanks? Maybe a favorite musician or an athlete or a politician. I asked some people on staff earlier this week who they would have over. Our high school youth pastor, Brian Edmonds, said he'd go with Will Smith. Brett Canode, our creative communications director, he said Steven Spielberg. David Bates was pretty boring. He went with this 90-year-old Scottish author named Ian Murray that none of us have ever heard of, but he's written a bunch of biographies on 19th century revival leaders. David Holcomb, Bruce Springsteen. Probably no surprise to those of you that have been part of Run for God and heard his playlist. Marie Harrison and Kara Freiburg, they both went with the same person. Dolly Parton. my, uh, My rising sixth grade girls who are really into soccer. They said, Alex Morgan and Rosie Lavelle, two members of the women's national team. All right, now, now once you have your person in mind, I want you to think with me for a moment about the meal that you would want to prepare and serve your special guest. If, if Miss Marie has over Dolly Parton, do you think she's going to open up a refrigerator and say, hey, hey, Martin, have you seen those those leftover chicken nuggets that we served the, the kids yesterday for lunch, I was thinking I'd pull those out and I'd, I'd pop them in the microwave and I'd, I'd warm them up. And then we, we've got that potato salad that's been sitting back there for a week. I just, I'll, take a, I'll take a spoon and I'll, I'll scrape the layer of fuzz off the top and we'll serve that to Dolly. Is Marie going to do that? No. Or what about if, if David Holcomb has over the boss, Bruce Springsteen, is he going to say, hey, hey, Christy, you know that rotisserie chicken that we kind of forgot about and left out on the counter uh, for a few hours? And we, we weren't going to eat it anyway, but we've got Bruce Springsteen coming over and we've got to serve him something. I was thinking we'd give him that. And, you know, do, do you know, do we still have those, those little uh, cheesecake squares from Costco in the freezer? I mean, they, they've been back there for like three years and they're covered in freezer burn, but I don't know what else we're going to do with them. So maybe, maybe we'll serve that. To Bruce Springsteen, is David going to do that? No, of course not. Or what about what about if Brett Kavanaugh has over Steven Spielberg, and uh, Mr. Spielberg walks into the house and he sees that you know Brett has this you know china cabinet with some nice plates and serving dishes and there's a there's a roast on the crock pot just simmering on the counter and they sit down for dinner. And Brett serves crackers and cheese Whiz on some styrofoam plates. How's that going to make Steven Spielberg feel? What's that going to communicate to him? And God says, this is exactly what you're doing to me. Instead of honoring me with the best of your flock, you're serving me the leftovers. You're giving me the scraps. These, These blind and sick animals that are of little value to you. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. With your words, you might be saying that you're excited to have me over. But with your actions, you're telling me a completely different story. When you reach past the tenderloin and you grab a hold of the Tupperware and then you fling some soggy French fries and some moldy cheese my way. God says our offerings to him are polluted when they're leftovers, when they're the scraps. When we say, God, you you, you know I love you. But uh, I'm going to go ahead and give my best to this, that, and the other thing. And and I realize this sounds a little harsh, but look with me again at verse 8. God God has such a strong word for this practice. Twice in verse 8, God gives us a one word description for this kind of valueless giving. He calls it what? He says it's evil. And then just to make sure there's no ambiguity as to how God feels about being offered the the chopped liver, he continues his train of thought in verse 10. He says, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you," says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations says the lord of hosts god makes this really strong and and, and frankly unexpected assertion here he says listen if this is how you're going to relate to me by bringing me scraps would someone just please lock the doors to the temple I'd rather you just don't approach the altar at all. Look with me again at verse 10. God says when we offer him what's of little value to us, it's one, it's in vain. Two, he says he has no pleasure in the person who brings it. And three, he says that he's not going to accept it from our hand. God sees no point in playing church and just doing some half-hearted religious activity. He calls it pointless. And then, in verse 13, God focuses on attitude. "'But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it,' says the Lord of hosts. "'You bring what has been taken by violence, or is lame, or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand?' says the Lord." It would seem that the people began to begrudge the time spent in worship and service to the Lord. I mean, sure, they showed up at the temple, but what a weariness it was. It was all done out of a sense of obligation. They woke up on the Sabbath and they said, do we have to do this again? Here we go again. It was drudgery to them. Their, Their hearts were indifferent. And as a result, They were just going through the motions. And this eventually led to complacency and compromise. They said, oh, yeah, 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 we we know what it says in the Torah about the kind of, of sacrifice that we're supposed to bring, but what does it really matter if we fledge a little bit and we bring a blind or a sick animal? And God wants to wake up their hearts to the beauty and to the blessing of a life to live faithfully before him. God said, this is not the kind of relationship I want with you where you just kind of pay me lip service and you do some half-hearted religious activity. God said, this, is, this isn't how I want you to relate to me. I'm, I'm a father that wants to bless you and you're snubbing me. He said, I want an intimate relationship with you. And in verse 14, God utters what might be his strongest indictment yet. He says, Cursed be the cheat. So curse be the cheat who has a male in his flock, and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. In other words, don't, don't go bottom barrel when you should be reaching for the top shelf. God says if we're in agreement that you wouldn't give these blemished animals to the Persian governor, then why would you give them to me? For I'm a great king. Now realize that we're in an Old Testament book, and this might cause some to wonder about the relevance of this for those of us living today under the new covenant. After all, the finished work of Jesus Christ has done away with the temple and the sacrificial system. So how does this apply to us? Let me be clear. God does not require us to fulfill laws to obtain a right standing before Him. Our basis of acceptance before God is on what Jesus did for us on the cross. But this principle of of giving to God is still an important act of worship. Our offerings are still a way of communicating to God that we honor Him. We should still give to God in a way that says, I'm expressing my devotion to you. And if our, our approach is to just kind of wait and see what we have left over at the end of the month and, and then give that to God, that's not very honoring to Him. Just think about it this way. Guys, if there was a special lady in your life, and you were in love with her, you're dating her, would you, would you go up to her and you'd say, I, you know, I, I, I'd really like to take you out to, to dinner and a movie but let's just wait until later on uh, towards the end of the month because uh, I want to make sure that I've got enough for a few golf outings and uh, I want to go hang out with my buddies some and I want to go buy some new clothes and some new new sunglasses and some new aftermarket accessories for my car and then if I've got enough left over, I'm going to take you out. She's not going to feel very loved if he does that and if he loves her, he's not going to do that, is he? He's going to prioritize her. And God says that He's honored when our giving to Him is planned and prioritized. Well, what about tithing? In the passage that Brett read in Malachi 3.10, it says, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. So are Christians obligated to tithe? That's a good question. And I'd agree with one of my favorite commentators, Dr. David Beatty who said tithing is not a law that christians are obligated to obey but it's a principle we should joyfully embrace as we seek to honor god so tithing is not a law that we're obligated to obey but it's a principle that we joyfully embrace as we seek to honor god and for those of us that are on this side of the cross our motivation for faithfulness is even greater 2 Corinthians chapter 8 says that we should give in light of what God has given to us. To the Christian, God says, "Just, just think about what Jesus did for you. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And that means that there's some people that might need to go beyond a tithe in order to honor God. And there might be some who would say, well, no, 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 I, seriously, I, I can't even, I, I can't afford to tithe. And in, in light of, um, you know, what, what God said earlier about closing the doors to the temple, is it just better for me not to give it all until I can afford to tithe? And I would say, when we look at that passage, what God was doing is He was expressing His displeasure with a valueless offering with being presented the leftovers, the scraps. And so I'd say, pray about what it looks like for you to give God a meaningful gift. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, it says that man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And so God would know what it looks like for you to honor Him in this particular season. So I'd say, just pray about it. Talk to Him about it. Say, God, I don't don't want to give you scraps. I I want to give you a meaningful gift, and I I would just ask that you would guide me in what that looks like. And then I would encourage you to take that step of faith. And in Malachi chapter 3, God says that we can trust Him, that when we step out in obedience in this way, that He's going to honor that decision. So Malachi challenges the people to renew their faithfulness in several ways, but the area he focuses on the most is faithfulness in terms of giving, in terms of our offerings. And then in the latter half of the book, Malachi challenges the people to reframe their perspective. This call to faithful living is then accompanied by a reminder of what's ahead, of what God has in store. In Malachi chapter 3 verse 1, we find these words, behold, I send my messenger And he will prepare the way for me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And then fast forward to chapter 4, verse 1, we read, "'For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts,' So that will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. So Malachi concludes the book by reminding us of how God's grand story will end. And if you noticed several times in the closing of the book, Malachi mentions this future day. And we see the partial fulfillment of this day in the coming of that messenger, John the Baptist, 400 years after Malachi, this Elijah like prophet who prepares the way for Jesus, the great son of righteousness. And perhaps that verse called to mind a line from the beautiful Christmas hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It goes like this Hail the heaven born Prince of Peace, Hail the Son. Of righteousness light and life to all he brings risen with healing in its wings and this is the verse that Charles Wesley had in mind when he penned that beautiful hymn and for those of us who honor the Lord who live faithfully before him in this life there's the promise that one day we shall go out like calves leaping from the stall and you might wonder what in the world does that mean and do I even want to do that? And the answer is yes. That's a good thing. For those of us that are unfamiliar with livestock, this is a vivid image of unbridled excitement and joy. And for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus and sought to live faithfully before Him in this life, one day our hearts will be filled with that kind of excitement and joy when Christ returns and we receive the crown of righteousness and He shall come And he shall completely and forever remove grief and darkness and sorrow with the healing that he will bring on his wings. That's what we have to look forward to. And then Malachi ends with this final encouragement to be faithful and to remember the coming day of the Lord. This is how the Old Testament ends. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Remember, be faithful. Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Reframe your perspective. The Lord's going to come. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to the children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. The people aren't told the day or the hour. They aren't given any miraculous sign. They're just told it will happen. And it's expected that they'll walk by faith and not by sight. And you know the same is true for us today. As we live in light of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now through this book, God is wanting you to come and He's wanting to press in our hearts. And He's wanting to ask, right now, as as it relates to our relationship, are you just going through the motions? Are you just paying me lip service? Are you maybe a little lethargic spiritually? Are you a little indifferent? Are you a little complacent when it comes to our relationship? And if that's the case, what God is wanting to say through the prophet Malachi is, wake up your hearts To the beauty of a life lived in devotion to God. I'm reminded of what the great 19th century pastor Charles Spurgeon said. He said, A half committed Christian is the most miserable person on earth. Let me say that again. A half committed Christian is the most miserable person on earth. He is just enough in the world to be miserable in the presence of God, and he's just enough into God to be miserable in the world. Don't settle for a half-hearted walk of faith. Wake up your heart. Renew your faithfulness. Reframe your perspective and lean into life with this great King who wants to bless you. Can I pray for us? Our Father in heaven, we recognize right now just as as we come before you in prayer, that we are approaching a great king. And yet at the same time, we're approaching a a loving father who wants to bless his children. And we thank you that you would have that kind of love for us. And I pray that you would forgive us for the times that we have doubted your love and I pray that you would forgive us for the times that we have also failed to honor you, to respect you as we should. And Lord, I pray right now that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would take your words and that you would impress them upon our heart and mind. And was a result of spending some time in Malachi, That you would transform us the way that we need to be transformed so that we could experience the blessing of a life lived faithfully before you. God, we thank you so much for sending your son Jesus and for the hope and the life and the inheritance that he gives us. We ask that you would be pleased with our worship, and the ways that we'll seek to honor you as we move forward from this. And we pray all of this very gratefully in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.